This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here on New Books in Eastern European Studies, New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, and New Books European today with our guest, Professor Teodora Dragostinova. Her book is The Cold War from the Margins, A Small Socialist State on the Global Cultural Scene published by Cornell University Press just out May 2021 and available in open access. Thanks so much, um, Theodora, for joining me today. Good morning, Stephen. I'm very excited to be having this conversation with you. Uh, So a little bit about uh, our guest today. Theodora Dragostinova is an associate professor of history at Ohio State University, whose work focuses on nationalism, migration, Global History, and Cold War Culture. A native of Bulgaria, she completed her BA in History and Archaeology at the University of Athens, Greece, and her PhD at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She's the author of Between Two Motherlands, Nationality and Emigration Among the Greeks in Bulgaria, 1900 to 1949, also Cornell University Press, 2011, which was shortlisted for the Joseph Rothschild Prize in Nationalism and Ethnic Studies and the Edmund Keeley Book Prize from the Modern Greek Studies Association. She is the co-editor with Yana Hashamova, Beyond Mosque, Church and State, Alternative Narratives of the Nation in the Balkans, published by Central European University Press 2016, and the thematic cluster co-edited with Magojata for Fidelis at the University of Illinois, Chicago, called Beyond the Iron Curtain, Eastern Europe and the Global Cold War. This was in Slavic Review in 2018. So on today to the Cold War from the margins with Professor Dragostinova, and my first question for you is, customarily, what motivated you to write this book? Looking back, I think I have always wanted to write this book because in many ways it's a book about my childhood. Growing up uh, in late socialist Bulgaria, in the 1970s and the 1980s, I am a child of developed socialism. Uh, And for me, that was a way to explore the larger processes which have informed the the way I shaped uh, shaped as an adult. Um, So I, in fact, remember that when I had an uh, interview with my current job, 
uh, at Ohio State University back in the day, 2006, then they asked me what my second book project would be. I told hmm. them that I wanted to write this book. And um, then I did it. Um, it was an open-ended project. I didn't know when I started researching this topic where exactly it will take me, but I wanted to research the historiography on late socialism, which at the time I began my work was very scarce. There were just a few people working on late socialism at that point. And I also wanted to engage with all of these exciting debates about global and transnational contacts beyond the Iron Curtain, which similarly were uh, really uh, up and coming during this uh, time period that I began my work. And then as the project evolved, I expanded it even further to incorporate an even global perspective which I'm now realizing is also rooted in my childhood on, on some level, um, because uh, at least one of the case studies that I am using in my book, that is the case study of Bulgaria in Nigeria, uh, originates in the fact that as a child, my parents actually worked as specialists in Nigeria. And this is how I chose that particular case study. So just to, to emphasize, in some ways, this is a personal project. It is a scholarly project. There is no mm -hmm. doubt about that. Uh, but uh, in fact, um, I have always wanted to be and vicariously have been, you know, dreaming mm -hmm. of being also an anthropologist. <laughs> and this is the yes. closest I have come uh, to that. Yeah, that, that was my question for you, Theodora. I, I thought maybe you had dreamt of being an archaeologist. Um, <laughs> what, what was it like, I guess, you know, this is first the autobiographical dimension, growing up in, in the 70s and 80s in communist Bulgaria under, under Zhivkov. What, what kind of experiences did you have? And then, of course, how, how would you describe it to an audience that, that might be unfamiliar with that context? I have very intense memories of this period when I first entered elementary school uh, and uh, when I continued with my education. First of all, I want to say emphatically that I had an extremely positive experience with a great education that was provided to me um, by, you know, I mean, world-class teachers. Uh, but at the same time, I vividly remember the ideological language of the late socialist regime, which was actively trying to shape the young generation uh, of socialist Bulgaria and of what the regime called multifaceted personalities. So this omnipresent ideology and ideological rhetoric are really something that I have vivid memories of. I remember sitting literally uh, in uh, the hall of the National Palace of Culture when it was first opened and listening to speeches exalting the glories of ancient and modern Bulgaria. Mm -hmm. This is how omnipresent this propaganda was. And we'll talk later on, you know, what is a fair way to describe it? Is it propaganda? Is it culture? And what is, you know, the meaning and the slippage between these terms? Um, but but um, I... I want to emphasize that it was part of the reality of late socialism. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I also want to emphasize that late socialism is many ways about normal lives of normal people. And I really wanted to go beyond 
these narratives of victimhood that pitch Eastern Europeans and Eastern Europe um, as an area confined behind, you know, an iron curtain in captivity with a dull life and uninventable, (laughs) uh, you know, sort of like, you know, lives. Um, So I wanted to also show the rich lives that, uh, you know, late socialist citizens had the opportunity to participate in. So mm-hmm. that was one of the motivations, right, to write this book. And then to add another dimension, I mean, what was life under socialism during late socialism in particularly, um, this feeling that the world is expanding and that you are a part of a larger world was, world was very pronounced throughout my childhood. The mm-hmm. international dimensions, all of these multiple contacts with agents, not uh, only in Europe and not only in the socialist bloc, but also with the world, with the large, with the large world. Uh, that was also a very, um, you know, formative element uh, mm-hmm. of how the citizens of late socialism experienced their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that leads me to my next question for you. You know I'm, I'm really interested in, in mental maps and, and geography and temporal and spatial boundaries. So where and when is your Bulgaria in the book? So the way I envisioned this book was as a series of concentric circles, which are centered on Bulgaria, because Bulgaria in my narrative is the center of, of, you know, of the universe. So this is a pericentric approach which centers the periphery, the periphery being Bulgaria. And I begin my story with the local context within Bulgaria and then expand to include the Balkan Peninsula and the various neighbors of socialist Bulgaria in the Balkans. Then I look at the West, and here the West, for me, I have chosen case studies from Western Europe and the United States, even though in the state socialist conception of the West, there were also other countries included in this idea of the West. But I decided to stay focused uh, on uh, those case studies. Um, I'm also trying very actively to engage with the stories of emigres because I wanted to build this um, narrative also you know, the outside and inside perspectives, the local and the global constantly intertwining. Uh, so emigres were a great lens for me to engage with this interpenetration at different levels. And then I um, chose uh, three case studies from the third world or the developing world. Uh, this is sort of like the global perspective. Uh, And I chose to engage uh, specifically with India and Mexico and Nigeria because I roughly wanted a different country from a different continent. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I, I love the fact that you've chosen those. I I guess there could be a lot more, right? I mean, Angola, Ghana, Japan, right? So what made you you choose India and and Mexico and, and profile those? So actually, when I was doing my research, I still have a lot of material that I have to decide what I'm doing with uh, on Argentina, because there was a large Bulgarian colony there, but I decided not to pursue it. Uh, On Canada, 
Japan and Cuba. This was some other case studies that I considered. And then, of course, as far as Africa, I was, uh, you know, playing actually with Tanzania because mm-hmm. I didn't want necessarily, I mean, I was sort of like trying to figure out, do I want a socialist state? Do I want a non-socialist state? All of these considerations. Um, but uh, uh, basically, uh, I mean, the way uh, I envisioned it, it was mandatory for me to engage with India and Mexico because they have a special significance uh, in this cultural extravaganza orchestrated by Bulgarian communist elites uh, because they were a special um, geography of interest for the daughter of the communist leader, Todor Zhivkov, Ludmila Zhivkova, who was the minister of culture beginning in 1975 and who very much shaped the international cultural agenda of small Bulgaria according to her own personal interests, which Mm -hmm. included interest in Eastern philosophies, in theosophy, in meditation, in Sanskrit, yoga, Um, She was a vegetarian and so forth. Uh, So she shaped the cultural outreach of Bulgaria also based on the areas that she personally wanted to cultivate a contact with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Lyudmila. um, And I, I understand that you know, there's been a lot of interest in in her life and her work, and and maybe even books and dissertations written about her. So um, she seems very charismatic. She had you know a very good rapport with it seems Gandhi and 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 Nehru and and others, and traveled the world. So I, how do you understand her particular role, as you say, as the Minister of, of Culture in Bulgaria? What, what did she do and how do you understand it? So the Western press was fascinated with her. She was young. She was eccentric. She wore these peculiar outfits that did not fit the standard image of a communist princess. Sometimes the press actually called us that, her that, the communist princess. But also uh, they were fascinated by her worldly air and by her knowledge of Eastern cultures and uh, Eastern philosophies and Sanskrit and so forth. So there is one dimension here, the way the press actually interpreted her, the Western press and Western observers interpreted her uh, as uh, a sign of fresh ideas. Uh, Mm -hmm. in Bulgarian culture. Now, within Bulgaria, on the other hand, I mean, she was seen definitely as different, but there was no doubt that the average Bulgarian citizen of the time, she was seen first and foremost as the daughter of the communist dictator, Mm -hmm. as a sign of the nepotism of this system that promotes the children of, you know, the higher-ups and the nomenclatura at the expense of others. So uh, there is this, on the one hand, right, sort of like exotic image that is weirdly perpetuated in the Western opinions. But then within Bulgaria, there is a much more nuanced image, especially during the period, which curiously now under post-socialism, that aspect of her image is being forgotten. And she's often again described as as Hmm. this uh, path-breaking, sometimes even dissident, which she was absolutely not, she was part of the regime, uh, Mm -hmm. who 
shaped uh, cultural policies in unexpected ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm particularly interested in that period you you describe in several of your chapters between 1975, the the Helsinki moment, if you will, and and her death, which was um, tragic and I guess kind of surprising in in 1981. Um, I, my question for you, Theodora, I'm I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners about your chapter content, how you begin incorporating not only Zhivkova's, let's say, dedication to aesthetic education, but this Bulgarian international or transnational diplomacy. How how do you see that developing? And and then, you know, how did you go about researching it and laying it out in your chapters? So when I started uh, looking at these dynamics, I really had two lenses of analysis. One was culture. And the meaning of culture and cultural contact, and particularly transnational cultural contact, uh, because I mostly focus on the international aspects of culture. And then the second lens, I really wanted to tease out the dynamics of the global 70s, because I considered that the time has come for historians to start, you know, considering seriously the 70s as a historical uh, period. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so the way I uh, envisioned, uh, you know, the entire book was on the one hand, I had to provide the background information about internal developments uh, within Bulgaria to allow people understand, you know, the origins of these dynamics. So I do have some focus on the domestic context, but um, the book is mostly focused on cultural e- uh, outreach beyond Bulgaria and the choices that communist elites made in shaping those contacts. So when I speak about culture, I want to emphasize that I speak about what I call official culture. Mm -hmm. There are many ways to define culture, and the way I have gone about it is to speak about the official cultural policies of the communist regime. So this is the scope. I am not doing more than that. This is the scope of the work. I think that there is much more for other scholars out there to do in terms of the reception of these policies, grassroots reaction, reactions, countercultural policies, and so forth. These are all absolutely valid topics, and overdue research uh, is, you know, uh, they, they mm-hmm. need to be researched further. Uh, but this is not what I do. So my focus is on official policy, and my focus is on international co- cultural contact through the lens of cultural diplomacy. Because mm-hmm. I find particularly fruitful the framework of international historians who have studied extensively the role of cultural diplomacy. Um, because for me, when I'm studying culture, I'm looking at the constant um, overlap and interplay between notions of culture, ideology, and propaganda. Uh, Mm. Because in the conceptions of the communist regime, official culture was part of, you know, the ideological message that they were trying to shape. And often they were speaking about cultural propaganda events, giving you a very clear understanding that they were trying, again, to shape public opinions of, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, particular visions that they were trying to promote. Yeah, I, I guess I have a follow-up question for that. I, I mean, I, I'm really intrigued by your language of showcasing, and I think in one of your phrases you have rep- reputational purposes, which I, I find is 
you know, very revealing about small East, Euro East European countries in general, and, and especially like at the moment of EU enlargement. Um, I, I wonder if you if you could tell our readers about the Jubilees and the Jubilee culture. So Bulgaria had a way of branding itself around the 1,300th year anniversary from the founding of the state. How did that work exactly? And, and who developed this mode or form of, of nationalism or patriotism and cultural diplomacy? So uh, round anniversaries are nothing new. Um, they were used extensively throughout uh, you know, the communist uh, uh, world, really. Um, various celebrations of various events were omnipresent. And in fact, we see the use of such round anniversaries throughout the world. And when the Bulgarians started thinking about shaping the international cultural outreach, what is very interesting to me is, yes, they made this anniversary, this jubilee, 1300 years since the establishment of the Bulgarian state in 681, that became the focal point of all of their activities. Because, honestly, it was attractive. It allowed them to yeah. speak about universal right. values. Mm -hmm. It uh, allowed them to speak about forgotten European civilizations and the role of Slavic literacy and Slavic culture in European history and European civilization. So it allowed them to basically pitch themselves as quintessential Europeans, not just some Europeans on the margins of Europe who have been forgotten. So one aspect of uh, the message that uh, the Bulgarians uh, were trying to promote had to do um, as uh, it was basically uh, shaped in terms of Bulgaria as one of the eldest states in Europe. In other words, the Bulgarians were trying to reclaim their European identity, to reassert themselves as an important European player not just as the most loyal ally of the Soviet Union from times immemorial. So this is, you know, the reputational aspect of it, to show the independence of the regime, to counter Western images uh, of Bulgaria as the model satellite. And mm -hmm. in many ways, what I found in my research is that strategy actually worked. That as time yeah. went forward, <laughs> Yes, I mean, even though... It's even, very surprising. <laughs> it's it, it surprising. Up until today, in the scholarship too, what we are seeing is that scholars continue speaking about Bulgaria as predictable, as the satellite, as the follower of the Soviet model. And there are aspects of that that are correct in military, in economic policy, in, in you know, larger political frameworks. Yes, Bulgaria was following the Soviet model. There is no doubt. But when it comes to culture, and I think this is what's so attractive to me to look at culture, when it comes to culture and when it um, comes to ideas of self-definition and creating national and cultural narratives, the Bulgarians were really pushing against the Soviet Union uh, uh, and uh, against this idea of the, uh, of the Russians as the premier uh, you know, uh, actors in, in Slavic history, in Slavic civilization. Uh, mm -hmm. And that often irritated the Soviets to the degree that in the Soviet Union, this anniversary was largely downplayed. And we have uh, evidence that Brezhnev regularly spoke to Zhivkov about the need to tone down 
this mm. nationalist narrative, something that I was not able to document in the archives myself, but I have a strong feeling that yeah. this is the case. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. That, yeah, that, that was another question I, I had, actually. I was thinking about records of, if there are records of conversations between Brezhnev and 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 Zhivkov, because, you know, the impression in so much of the Cold War stereotypical literature was of, of Zhivkov as, as a sort of toady or, you know, at least most loyal after, especially 1968. I mean, are, are you finding on that very high level any instructions or, <laughs> I mean, that sort of smoking gun that, that was given or was it more sort of implied? I did not look at those specific records because I decided early on that I'm not going to try and go into the Russian archives. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I did not necessarily look at those records. I have looked at some memoir literature and I have looked at some secondary literature that um, shows actually the intensity of the conversations between Brezhnev and Zhivkov on a number of issues, for example, on the issue of Balkan multilateralism and, you know, Balkan regional cooperation, uh, Zhivkov and Brezhnev continuously had tensions over the the Balkan politics, uh, the Balkan policies uh, of Bulgaria. Uh, And often Zhivkov persistently explained and tried to convince Brezhnev that, um, you know, he is trying to convince policies of common interest, yet he also has to assert his own voice in Mm -hmm. order not to be sidelined in the Balkans. Mm -hmm. So I'm definitely seeing some evidence of Zhivkov pushing back. I'm also seeing, it was very interesting to me, in actually foreign diplomatic records, Zhivkov speaking quite openly and actually somewhat um, jokingly to Western diplomats about, uh, well, the Soviet Union being in a colonial relationship with Bulgaria because Bulgaria was getting all uh, of uh, its uh, resources from the Soviet Union and selling its finished products to to the Soviet Union, right? Uh, Right. So uh, Zivkov was constantly joking that he had managed to actually turn this economic relationship to an advantage for the Bulgarian uh, uh, economy. And we do have evidence for that, and more scholars are showing that to be the case. In other words, um, the the Soviet-Bulgarian eternal friendship was definitely benefiting the Zhivkov regime economically and politically. Mm -hmm. I, I, I wanted to ask a timeline question, just shifting gears a little bit for the global 70s. And, and I know you mentioned this earlier uh, in the interview, and, and so much scholarship has been produced about this recently. So what is your timeline for the long 70s? I, I think rather than a short 70s, you know, since the oil crisis in 1973, correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you have a long 70s, maybe from 68 to, to 82. Um, I do. I, 
What what so what are the moments for Bulgaria in a kind of transnational universe for the global seventies? How do you conceive of that? So I definitely uh, see um, 1968-69 as a milestone, which reset the conversations um, about uh, you know uh, east-west contact in particular, uh, with the beginning of the intensification of detente. And I actually I really buy Jeremy Suri's idea of detente as a conservative reaction of elites, both in east and west, that works particularly well. Uh, for uh, you know, uh, my analysis of Bulgarian uh, you know communist elites who uh, wanted to promote detente as a way to control larger processes within society, what I am seeing in Bulgaria beginning in 1970 after after the Prague Spring and after the Bulgarian participation uh, in the invasion of Czechoslovakia, the Zhivkov regime is beginning a very systematic process. Careful but systematic process of further consolidating power and purging political opponents, including a new constitution, which defines the role of culture in developed socialism, uh, which which basically sets the framework uh, for the rest of the socialist uh, period. Um, And so what is interesting about Bulgaria throughout the 1970s is that Bulgaria is actually relatively stable. Bulgaria does not experience the same level of economic instability or political uh, fragility as some other Eastern European states. Uh, First of all, in terms of economics, because of the Soviet relationship, um, the effects of the economic crisis are really muted in Bulgaria. They become manifested a little bit later. And then in terms of politics, what you're seeing is that the regime is predominantly stable throughout the 1970s. Uh, And it only actually becomes destabilized in the mid-1980s. And for that reason, the Bulgarian communist uh, leadership is extremely confident throughout the 1970s. So when you look, when you take this pericentric approach that I am trying to implement in this book, what you are seeing is that in the 1970s, which is supposed to be these years of doom and gloom. In fact, Bulgaria is experiencing a relative economic and political stability and definitely cultural flourishing. And then that goes beyond the standard categorizations of the 1970s as uh, the years of diminished expectations and multiple crises. Yes, there are multiple contradictions within how all of these aspects of political, economic, cultural, social life manifested themselves uh, in Bulgaria. Yet, what I really want to emphasize with this book is that the period that I'm studying, the period of the late 1970s, are not um, the beginning of the end of communism in Bulgaria. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Very often in the historiography, right? I mean, people start dating the beginning of the end of communism exactly. in 78, 79, 80. But they yeah. look at Poland, right? Exactly. They look, they look yeah. at Czechoslovakia. Right. They, they look at the case studies we know more about. But if you look at Bulgaria, you actually see a communist regime that is confident, uh, that uh, has provided an, a level of nor- normalcy to its population. And one of the ways this normalcy is achieved is actually through cultural policy. 
And and I guess you know I, there are many phrases that you have or, or sections in the chapters. Um, I particularly enjoyed chapter three, culture as a way of life. We talk about the organization of events. So, <laughs> I mean, they're in the thousands. <laughs> it's yes. unbe- unbelievable how much time and, and I guess money too was invested from the mid seventies to the early eighties. So, do do you have any impression? of the response? I mean, where, where these took place, I guess, between capitalist countries and ideologically, you know, communist countries as well. How, how are some of these events, Bulgarian cultural events received both in the diaspora and beyond? So again, I want to emphasize that when we're talking about events, we're talking about what the communist regime called representative events and prestigious events. So we're talking about uh, exhibitions uh, in famous museums, concerts, um, you know, photo exhibits, book readings, uh, film screenings, uh, and, and so forth. Um, and the numbers that are reported, reported are staggering. But I want to emphasize that there is no doubt that these numbers, and actually one statistic I came across from the Bulgarian Sociological Institute, gave the staggering number of 38,000 events in five wow. years. Yes. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, there's no doubt that the way these events were counted, uh, you know, that reminds us sort of like the mechanisms of how do you fulfill your cultural plan? Because these are plans, right? Plans mm-hmm. that are set by the central authorities that the embassies have to f- fulfill, that the cultural institutions have to fulfill. So they literally write reports back in which they list what events they have organized uh, and they count, you know, how many events they have organized. So there is a lot of doctoring of data here going mm-hmm. on. So I have no doubt that some of these numbers are, uh, uh, you know, overemphasized. Uh, but what is important to me is, again, the geography and the importance yes. placed on certain areas. So as far as the West Early on, the Bulgarian regime decided that this was a priority. And then they also decided that what is going to matter there is quality, not quantity. So quantity was reserved for other areas of the world, not for the West. So they went for the best cultural institutions. They went for the British Museum. They went for mm-hmm. the Petit Palace. They went uh, for uh, the Metropolitan Museum uh, of Art in New York. Uh, this is what they wanted. They wanted uh, the world to see this uh, small state as the heir of a, of a worthy, world-renowned civilization. And they counted audiences. Supposedly in the British Museum, some 300,000 visitors saw the Bulgarian treasures. Mm. Uh, this is a vast number. Uh, of visitors who came and, you know, saw these Bulgarian exhibits who were um, accompanied by glossy pamphlets that were also exalting the achievements of the socialist regime. Uh, So again, here you see this overlap between culture and propaganda. uh, Because it was the reputational aspect of it, to shape public opinion. Now, this is one aspect of the events. The other aspect is that the Bulgarians were definitely trying to also organize more impactful events, such as meetings with progressive intellectuals and allies. So there are a number of those, and they seem to be um, successful. Why? 
because the Bulgarians decided in most of these events in the West to ignore ideology and actually stick with universal human values. So when they went to Western institutions, to Western congresses, to meetings, they very consciously downplayed nationalism and then very consciously ignored propaganda in the actual events. In other Mm. words, in the internal rationalization of why we're going to the to the West with you know our cultural events, propaganda was omnipresent. But when actually the Bulgarians went to the West, they wanted to emphasize culture, not ideology, in the way mm-hmm. they pitched their their events. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask a question about that for for India and Mexico. I mean in chapter five, which is titled Like a Grand World Civilization. Um, I think you make this argument very strongly through the Paracentric perspective. And that's, you know, in fact, with the connections that that Bulgarian cultural bureaucrats and technocrats and, and sort of culture vultures are making with India and Mexico, ideology is very problematic. I wonder if you could say something about that, the political allegiances and the dirty wars that Mexico has and so forth. I mean, is that a priority for Shivkov? Does he care about the ideological, let's say, goodwill gestures? Um, How does that work in the 1970s? Is it just that culture has become more important than politics, period? So we are learning more and more from the growing literature that in the ni- from the 1960s on, communist e- elites were very willing to compromise their ideological understandings of the world for pragmatic reasons. Uh, and uh, we have various Eastern European states actually going uh, and you know forging contacts and contracts uh, with uh, capitalist uh, states, but also with various uh, dictators. Uh, which went against their ideological understandings of the world. And this is very much happening in Bulgaria as well, where you have uh, Zhivkov forging this contact with Indira Gandhi, for example, in India, during a period of severe repression that she was implementing in the late 1970s in her own country but completely ignoring that part of the, of the diplomatic interactions. And what was very interesting for me to see in the Bulgarian diplomatic correspondence, how a key concern was how to, and that is a quotation, resolve the contradictions uh, in, mm. in the relationship yeah. between pra, pra, the states. Prativoreci, pra, right? Exactly, <laughs> that, <there's>, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. What are, I mean, what are the contradictions? Are they just political? Because, I mean, the alignment, I guess, with Nigeria seems very interesting. There are a lot of countries that are courting Nigeria because of the oil glut um, and world markets, you know, after 1973. How, I mean, how would, you, how would you explain this sort of motive? Um, Well, so something I haven't touched upon yet, and I probably should, is that also very often the motivations are also economic. Because what you're seeing is a regime that is now really intent on acquiring more hard currency uh, uh, with, again, making compromises with ideological positions in order to forge successful economic relationships. So at the same time as the Bulgarians were forging cultural contacts, 
uh, in India and Mexico, they were also building chemical plants and uh, uh, agro-industrial complexes uh, and other economic enterprises in these two countries. And then at the same time, they were trying to uh, stage culture in Nigeria in these bizarre events, which make no sense. Why would you even try to do this in Nigeria when your your uh, desire is actually, again, to forge economic relationships? The main consideration there was to secure construction contracts for the Bulgarian construction firm, mm-hmm. Techno Export Story, in order to be able to participate in the building of the new capital of Nigeria, Abuja, which the, the new federal government uh, was building. So mm-hmm. you see pragmatism, not ideology, dominating these relationships. Mm-hmm. And that becomes even more so in the 1980s when ideology, and other scholars are showing this now, ideology was really put to the side. Mm -hmm. Is is it safer, Theodora, to reach out in these friendship and goodwill societies to diaspora groups or to distant countries that that are not anti-communist and, let's say, Mm -hmm. not antagonistic? Because, again, you've got this really fascinating part. People have to read it about New Lexington, Ohio, and... You know, there, there's also the emigrate press, obviously, in places like Munich, um, not to mention dissidents like Blago Dimitrova and so forth. So, I mean, is it a safe choice from the perspective of, of Zhivkov and, and his sort of power elite structure to, to reach out to distant countries like that? It actually was in some ways a minefield, especially in the West, where you do have a vocal anti-communist emigrate community. So I I want to sort of like differentiate here. Where was it safe? It was really safe in India, Mexico, and Nigeria. Where, you know, first of all, these are faraway places. The average Bulgarian has no no way to stay informed of what's happening there. And frankly, the relationships that the Bulgarian elites are forging in these countries are often based on personal interests and personal connections between the ruling families. So those appear more as like dynastic relations, uh, almost. And and what is so interesting is in these faraway places, India, Mexico, Nigeria, but also I will add here uh, Japan, which I chose not to research, but was also another prime destination. What you're seeing there is this exaggerated Bulgarian uh, rhetoric of, you know, Bulgaria as a grand civilization. Because why? There's no one there to scrutinize this message and question this message. This, mm-hmm. Basically, you go there, it's a tabula rasa, no one knows about you, you can say whatever you want to say. And this is exactly what the Bulgarians are doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, not so much so in the Balkans or in the West, where the Bulgarians are facing continuous pushback. And they have mm-hmm. to be very, very careful how they shape their message. Mm-hmm. And, and do you see successes in this specifically east-south axis or, or the Bulgarian version of multilateralism? Proximately, I guess, proximately by which I mean in, in the Balkans or in southeastern Europe, I, I guess, you know, a footnote to this, one of the surprises is Bulgarian-Greek relations or maybe even Bulgarian-Turkish relations. I mean, how do you see this regionally? Um, were there successes in this kind of multilateralist culture-centric policy that, that you can 
that you can pick up on? Yes, the Balkans were a big surprise to me. In my first book, I studied Bulgarian-Greek relations uh, in the first half of the 20th century, and I knew uh, very well that uh, those did not go uh, very smoothly uh, in the first half of the 20th century. So when I actually discovered this breakthrough that Bulgaria and Greece achieved through, through culture in the 1970s, that was definitely a surprise to me. What became very clear is that if we take a regional perspective rather than just think about, you know, geopolitics and the, and the priorities of the superpowers, what we are really seeing is that the, at the regional level, breakthroughs are possible. But I also want to emphasize that these were not easy breakthroughs because the Bulgarians had to constantly balance. They had mm-hmm. to perform this balancing act between Cold War positioning between socialist and capitalist states, and then also national interests and national narratives. Because if the Bulgarians could go to Mexico and claim to be one of the greatest cultures Mm -hmm. uh, of Slavic civilization, they could not do this going to Yugoslavia or going Mm -hmm. to Romania or going to Turkey. Because they would immediately get slapped out, basically. That's a great point. Uh, Yeah. Thracian treasures, right? I mean, exactly. Take, take that to Macedonia and see what happens, right? Exactly. Because the Bulgarians had this universal narrative of, you know, Bulgarian civilization and the Bulgarian lands. Well, these Bulgarian lands from antiquity also included territories that are currently in the borders of your neighbors. So your mm-hmm. neighbors are watching you very closely what you're doing. And they're sending actually people to your events, they're sending people to foreign embassies and you mm-hmm. have to be alert and you have to be careful. And this is why actually the Bulgarians also chose to downplay somewhat nationalism because they didn't want to be constantly explaining mm-hmm. their nationalist narratives. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's a great point, Theodora. And, and that leads me to my big kind of historiographical question for you, which is, how you know do graduate students and future historians begin to retell this Cold War history, not not as a struggle of, of dissidence against a regime, but in in a larger context for for the seventies and, and beyond? And, and I guess I, to lead you, I, I I am very interested in the mindset and the role of technical intelligentsias, not not just let's say humanistic intelligentsias, but the role that experts play in a transnational capacity moving between countries. So, I mean, how, how do you then begin with your research to reconceive of, of grander Cold War stories and narratives? Well, um, I, I want to make one point here that I'm hoping that other scholars will continue exploring further. Right now, there is this global turn in particularly Eastern European history it has managed successfully to actually restore the agency of Eastern European states on the global scene in a variety of geographical contexts. But uh, so we, we have a growing literature on the second world in the third. But what I'm still seeing as um, a trend in the historiography is to continue to subsume all of these Eastern European states under a unitary second world. And we actually need to look further at the second world and to talk about the contradictions within the second world. And particularly the tensions between 
the Soviet Union and its so-called satellites. So mm-hmm. this is something that I tried to make the case of in my book, even though, again, Bulgaria is seen as this paradigmatic Soviet ally, even with small Bulgaria, you are seeing uh, that often Bulgarian priorities contradicted Soviet interests. And that is much more so with other Eastern European states, no doubt. So mm-hmm. that's definitely one path that I'm hoping that the historiography uh, will, uh, will follow. But I also want to say that the global turn definitely has its allures and definitely is a very productive way to question the secondary role of Eastern Europe in the, in the, in the grander European narrative, right? But I think we also need to not lose our sight of the local, of the granular local details, details of what is happening in each regional context. And I think we need to continue complicating, you know, um, the multiplicity of the so-called Soviet bloc. I mean, we are seeing yeah. a tremendous right. um, difference in the way all of these different countries actually behave. There is yeah. no such thing as the Soviet bloc in the 1970s, mm-hmm. especially if you look uh, at the Balkans. Uh, so I would love to see more scholars take on that task of complicating that notion and undermining the notion of satellites and blocks uh, and actually talking about multilateralism uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, all of these other issues. And and could you could you perhaps for our listeners here recommend some authors, recent books, um, similar work, maybe thought-provoking work. I guess I have, I have my own ideas, but I would love to hear yours. So um, probably uh, listeners are aware of the Socialism Goes Global projects uh, out of Exeter University. And James Mark and his team have produced a number, and I will uh, continue to produce a number uh, of inspiring works uh, on the global impact of Eastern Europe in the global imagination. So definitely I wanted to make sure I, ma- I mentioned that. Uh, some recent authors I am particularly um, grateful to be in conversation with, of course, includes David Engerman, who has, um, you know... Um, book really, on India. <laughs> yes, exactly. Book on India from the Soviet perspective, of course. Uh, and uh, again, he... he teases out these dynamics of the second world, which I think require further scrutiny. Of course, you cannot forget uh, um, Westat uh, and his global Cold War perspective. But Eastern European scholarship has produced really exciting work. I'm thinking about Lukas Stanek's work Mm, uh, on Eastern European uh, architects. Uh, In the developing world, I'm thinking about Christine Godzi, about Bulgarian, um, uh, the the official Bulgarian women's organization uh, in uh, in Africa. I'm also thinking about Viktor Petrov and his work on computing, Bulgarian computing, uh, again in the global uh, context. And he has also a chapter uh, on uh, India. Um, So... uh, there is a lot of promising world, uh, 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 work out there that will continue compli- uh, comp- <laughs> that will continue complicating our image of Eastern Europe in the world. 
Well, fabulous, Theodora. I mean, we've covered so much ground. Um, what would you say before I ask you about your, your projects that you're currently working on is, is the big point of your book? Do you have a big, a big argument in one sentence or two sentences? Um, how, how, would you, how would you conceptualize this along the east-south axis for others? So if I have to do this in two sentences, I will say, first, my very short sentences is small states matter. Uh, and when you start looking at the global dynamics from the perspective of the periphery, you discover unexpected caveats that really add to our global understanding of the conflicting manifestations of modernity uh, in this you know, increasingly mm-hmm. global uh, age that we are still living in. Mm-hmm. And what are you working on now? So uh, book projects, research projects, everything. I know you have a lot of energy. So tell us or here at New Books Network uh, what, so, uh, what you're interested in next. So uh, I am going to finish uh, two smaller projects that originate in my current research. I have um, the records of the Bulgarian uh, construction firm Techno Exports Troy which was working in various places throughout North Africa, the Middle East, uh, and also sub-equatorial Africa. So I want to write an article uh, on, uh, you know, these particular encounters that um, uh, occurred. I'm also um, very much looking forward to delving in a unique um, family archive that I have. My parents, who lived in Nigeria for two years, between 1977 and 1979, uh, have preserved all their correspondence. Uh, They wrote weekly letters to their parents uh, for two years. Um, Yes, uh, from Nigeria. Uh, And I want to do something with this family archive, which also includes photographs, uh, slides, my father wrote uh, his own travelogue, which was never published. And then interestingly, I wrote my own, what I quote at the time as a teenager, 16 or 70 years old, I wrote my memoir, my memories from <laughs> Nigeria oh, wow. when I was seven years old. Un- uncensored? Uh, self-censored? Uncensored. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we shall see how much of that will we'll see the public eye. Uh, I I want to conceptualize these materials probably through the prism of history of emotions and ego narratives and autobiographical writings. I am still thinking about it, but I'm actually looking forward to taking it in um, the direction of history of emotions, perhaps, Mm. because I think it it captures a particular moment in late socialism to this family story. And I Mm. think it might be interesting. Of course, it also leaves me with all these questions, how much of my own family history I want to air out and that <laughs> requires some negotiations with family members, but right. I actually am looking forward to that. Well, fabulous, Theodora. I, I will, you know, would love to read that. I, you know, I love family memoirs and, and prosopography too. And um, I just have to say thank you for, for spending time with me and, and here on the New Books Network talking about your book. Thanks so much. Thank you, Stephen. It really was a pleasure talking to you. So um, I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and our author today on New Books Network and New Books in Eastern European Studies is Professor Teodora Dragostinova. And her book is The Cold War from the Margins, A Small Socialist State on the Global Cultural Scene.
It is published by Cornell University Press in May 2021 and available open access. Thank you again to all of our listeners for joining us here on the podcast. Until next time.